physical touch. Let me hold you like a taco. <laughs> now, um, you know what the five love languages are supposed to be about, right? And, and those of you who are psychologists, mate, don't, uh, don't correct me here. Um, but uh, uh, the idea is that we all have a preferred uh, language, if you like, when it comes to the way we give and receive love. And the point of the five love languages isn't so much to find out what your love language is, but especially to find out what someone you want to show love to, what their love language is. Because by default, we're going to speak the dialect or the language that we're familiar with, but it may not be their love language. So I'll give you a classic example. So many Asians are like, my mom and dad never hugged me, never told me they love me. All right? And they're like, they don't love me. And I'm like, well, it's because probably your mom and dad's love language is what? Acts of service, right? Most Asian parents love language acts of service. So they do all these things for you, your laundry, your cooking, your everything. But your love language may be words of affirmation or physical touch or gifts. And you never get those either, right? Um, now, it's not that they don't love you. They just didn't speak your love language. So that's the point. Find out what someone else's love language is in order that you might communicate their love to them in a way that they understand. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about what God's love language might be. At the end of uh, the Gospel of John, which we've been taking a, a journey through, we're kind of halfway through, but next year we'll continue and finish. But at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus has risen from the dead. He appears to his disciples. He goes fishing with them. Um, and when they come back, he asks, you remember, he asks Peter, his chief disciple, he says, Peter, Son of John, Simon, son of Simon, sorry, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, sorry, Peter, son, you know what I mean. He says, he says Pete, um, and then he asks Peter this, three times he asks him, do you love me? Now, this is quite significant because at the end of John, Peter's feeling pretty bad because he had just betrayed Jesus, and here's his Lord appearing and asking, do you love me? Now, Jesus is going to ask us the same question today especially if you're a follower of Jesus, he's going to ask you, do you love me? And how are you going to answer that? How would you answer that? And how do you know that you speak his love language? Now, Deuteronomy 6, funnily enough, all the way in the Old Testament, is going to tell us that. What is God's love language? So I'm going to pray. Let's uh, bow our heads. And really prepare our hearts and expectant. I think Clem's really done a great job just getting us to be expectant that God is going to speak to us today. My words are just words, but when God speaks, He is able to take the words He's written down and even through me be able to speak afresh to our hearts. And I pray, and let's pray now that He would do that. Father God, I really pray. That as we come to your words in Deuteronomy 6, they won't just be words on a page. That they will today jump out at us, challenge us, rebuke us, correct us, train us. That we would be encountering you, the living God, by your Holy Spirit through these words. Because Lord, there are things you want to say to us today. And you know each heart here. And you search our hearts. And you know the mind of, our, of the Spirit that you've put in us. So we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us, each one of us, and that you would give us power to change. Amen. All right, I've got a few points for you. Check your uh, outline. First one is by way of uh, recap. So 
we've been in Deuteronomy for a couple of weeks now, you'll remember that the context is uh, Israel have been brought out of slavery in Egypt, made God's own special people, about to enter into the land that he's promised them, a sort of Eden 2.0. God is really wanting to begin again with the chosen people in his special place under his rule and blessing. But this is not the first generation that he brought out from Egypt under Moses. Whole 40 years has passed. This is the children and the first generation had all but perished, except two people, all but perished in the desert because of their disobedience to God, right? They came under judgment. Now that's over. New generation, again on the edge of the promised land and about to enter. And you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that a helpful way of thinking about the whole book of Deuteronomy is it's decision time. God is saying to this new generation, all right, you know what happened to your parents and why they failed, but now I'm speaking to you. This current generation, you guys are the ones that hold the promise, are about to enter the land. So you decide what you're going to do. Are you going to follow their way, the ones who perish, your parents? Or are you going to decide today to choose life? Trust in me, obey me as we go in. So it's decision time. And really, Deuteronomy is a bit like that. It's like a big rah-rah sermon because it's actually three sermons. Moses' last words before the people enter the land. Moses himself won't actually make it with them. He's also going to die just on the edge. And so he's got three chances, three sermons to help them to choose rightly. The first sermon we actually finish because chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 is Moses' first sermon. And you remember chapters 1 to 3 is a big flashback of why the parents failed. And then last week, chapter 4, really the kind of climax of the first sermon is calling them to obey and worship God alone. We're going to begin the second sermon. And that starts in chapter 5. Now, we don't have time to look in detail at chapter 5. You may have looked at it in your community groups, your CGs. But chapter 5 is a flashback as well. Another flashback to the really important episode where relationship with God, the Lord, formally started for them as a nation. And it's at Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. And there God gives His people... The Ten Commandments. Everyone's heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Even if you've never really been to church, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments. But the, the whole idea there of what happened at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments is, is basically the beginning of a formal relationship, what we would call a covenant, right? A covenant. So covenants that we're familiar with particularly is like marriage. So think about a marriage or a wedding ceremony. Right? These people are already in relationship, but at a wedding ceremony, the nature of that relationship is formalized, legalized, defined, promises in the, are made by the couple to each other in the presence of witnesses. That's a modern covenant. And, and Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments was a covenant ceremony where God and His people had their relationship formally defined. And if you like, the Ten Commandments are like their constitution as a nation. Yeah, every country has a constitution. Even churches like ours have a constitution. The Ten Commandments was theirs. But, and that's basically chapter 5. Now, it's tempting once you see the Ten Commandments to think, well, you know, does, is this relationship therefore just about laws and commands and duties? Like, you would hate to go to a wedding ceremony, right? And each one, the, the groom suddenly gives, here are my ten demands. And then the bride says, well, here are my ten Right? That just sounds like you've never been to a wedding ceremony like that. And, and it's a good thing it isn't like that. Um, and it's tempting to see, well, does that mean that God's relationship with his people is all about these laws and commands and duties and expectations? Well, of course, the answer is no. Because it's this chapter, the one we're looking at today, Deuteronomy 6, that shows you 
that the heart and soul of the commandments and the heart and soul of the covenant is what? It's relationship. And what kind of relationship? Well, look at chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. It's about love. Every single commandment and expectation and everything that will follow comes out of love. The command to love is at the core. In fact, so important is this verse that, do you remember Jesus, you know, a couple of thousand years later, he's asked, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. He quotes this exact verse. Chapter 6, verse 5 is at the heart of what God wants of his people. It's at the heart of his covenant relationship with God. And so you want to know what God's love language is. You've got to understand chapter 6, don't you? Now, in a moment, we're going to have a look at it in detail. But I just want to pause for a moment and just make us aware, if you're not already, that love, according to the Bible, is a choice. Yeah, you got that? Love is a choice. Remember, Israel is at the place of decision. They're asked to choose, and they're asked here to choose to love. Now, that may seem to you like, okay, big deal, but just think about it. How is love usually spoken of in our culture, in our movies, in our songs? It's usually about feelings, right? And so you fall into love like you would fall into a ditch, and it's an accident, I didn't choose to fall in love. It just happened. And so just as quickly as you fall into love, you can fall out of love. Well, we decided to split because we're no longer in love with each other. No, no, no. Love, according to the Bible, is, involves feelings, but it's primarily a choice. So you can choose to love God. And you may not always feel like it. And you can choose to love someone else. And you may not always feel like it. And I also want to say how good news, that is good news for us when it comes to God's love for us. But have a think about it. If love was primarily based on feelings, do you think God had any reason to love us? I mean, do you think God saw us and we were just so lovable and his heart just gushed with feelings of love and that's why he loved us and sent Jesus to die? No, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know what God's love is. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You see, if God had to feel love before he loved us, he would never get around to loving us. He chose to love us. And that's good news because love is a choice. Okay, so what's God, that was just a little bit of a detour, but what's God's love language? Well, I'm going to look at the how and then look at the why. So that's points two and three on your outline. So firstly, how to love the Lord. By the way, when you see the Lord, and Lord is L-O-R-D, all in capitals or little capitals, um, that is the name of God revealed to his people. Uh, in the older translations, it'd be Jehovah, but probably more accurate, it's Yahweh. All right? So, you know, we just sang a song, Hallelujah, that Yah bit is the first part of God's name. So, Hallelujah is praise Yah, praise the Lord, Yahweh. All right? So, um, how to love Yahweh or how to love the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 5, look at it again. Love the Lord or love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's talking about loving God with all of us. 
Now, what is the heart? Heart here is not what we usually think of when we think of the heart. We usually think of heart as emotions and feelings. No, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially the word heart there is not so much your emotions and feelings. It's where your decisions and desires are. So actually, it's your mind as well as your will as well as your motivations, more so than are your feelings, all right? In the Bible, actually, where your feelings are is your gut. It's your intestines. Strange, isn't it? All right, we just talk about things differently. We think of heart, emotions, they think of gut. Anyway, um, but the heart is the seat of your decisions and desires. So, I mean, we, we can use heart in that way too. So if, if, if I said to you, I've set my heart to top the HSC. Sorry, the HSC is on at the moment. It's too late for me, but... And I didn't top the HSC. Um, I've set my heart to top the HSC. Or for you, I've set my heart to, to get that promotion. What does setting your heart in that context mean? It doesn't mean I've set my emotions. right? It means I've decided I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to focus my will on it. Yeah, that's the idea of heart. So loving God with all your heart, actually, it's something like single-mindedness is a nice way of seeing it in modern terms. All right, so that's your heart. Second, loving God with all your soul. Soul here is not the eternal soul that goes to heaven when you die. That's not what it's talking about here. Soul is your inmost being. So there's a Psalm, Psalm 103, that says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise His holy name. Okay? Soul there is equated with inmost being. That's what it means. So again, we can use soul in this way too. So when we say something like, um, you know, Robbo is a good chef, and he says, I've poured my heart and soul into barbecuing this ox tongue for you, which he did this afternoon, by the way. Now, he does not mean I've poured my heart and my eternal soul that's going to heaven when I die to put... No, he doesn't mean that, right? It means I put every ounce of energy into... That's what it means. Loving God with all your soul is... You can think about it as, you know, doing something or loving God wholeheartedly, right? Wholeheartedly, it's all of you. And then the last of all is loving God with all your strength. Now, the, the Hebrew, again, the Old Testament written Hebrew, Hebrew here is kind of interesting because it's literally loving God with all your mostness. It is that awkward, okay? They're using a word that doesn't usually get used in that way, right? Your mostness, it's intensity, it's passion, it's holding nothing back. That's the idea there. So if you like, think about it as loving God right? Unreservedly. You don't reserve anything. You hold nothing back. So God's people, okay, to sum it up, God's people, and it's both God's people then, as in Israel then, but also followers of Jesus, God's people today now. What are we, how are we called to love God? What's God's love language? What does it look like? Well, here it is, all right? Loving the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, and strength, or in my words, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly. Now, you want to see someone, uh, people who love like that, not God necessarily. Um, I always think about top elite athletes. Uh, not me. Okay? I am not one of those. But um, top athletes, you know, those who are like top level, trying to train for Olympic gold. Um, I'm more familiar with cyclists, so those who want to like win at things like the Tour de France. Um, they literally, every area of their life, from what they eat to what they drink to what time they wake up to um, you know how often they uh, weigh themselves to what they do in their leisure time everything 
right, goes towards that goal. So top elite cyclists, really awkward people. I mean, not only do they have to shave their legs and wear tight clothes, um, if you're kind of trying to win the Tour de France, every calorie is basically counted because you're going to expend so many calories and you need to put in so many other calories, but you've got to make sure you're putting in good calories, the kind that will burn at the right rate, and you cannot put on any extra weight because it's so much harder to climb a mountain on a bike if you're that much heavier, but you cannot, you cannot lose weight, especially if it's muscle mass, all right? because you're not going to have the muscle to take you up the mountain. So cyclists I've read, I know this is not interesting for most of you, it's very interesting for me. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they are, like when they're in competition mode, in season, they are the laziest people off the bike because they expend so much energy on the bike. Basically, if they have to walk, it's a hassle. So if you're married to a cyclist, it's like the worst thing ever because not only are they away for most of the year, you know, riding a bike in Europe or something like that. When they're at home, they don't want to move. So if it's like, I don't want to go to the kitchen to get something to eat. So, you know, you're going to have to get someone to do that for you. Because even walking a few steps, expending unnecessary energy. But you see, everything, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, it doesn't matter what sport you're into, it's all the same, isn't it? I wonder if this is how you think about loving God. Because that's the picture that Moses is giving. That's the picture that God is giving. Because the opposite of this is what? The opposite of loving the Lord your God single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, and unreservedly is that you are double-minded, which means you can't make up your mind. You're half-hearted, you're only half in, and you're lukewarm. Which means you aren't going to love God in His love language. If you say, oh, well, I love God and I serve God, but I also love and serve God's substitutes. You know those good things that God actually gives you, but you turn into God things, otherwise we sometimes call idols. So Jesus says you cannot love both God and money. Actually, the word he uses isn't just money, as in cash. It's mammon, which is an older word that means something like material goods. You cannot serve both God and materialism. And yet, how many of us do? You can't. That's double-minded, half-hearted, lukewarm love. You can't love God if he's one of the important, but not the most important person or thing in your life. Jesus says, not even your family, your mother, your father, your children, your spouse comes before God. Wow. And that's in a context, in a culture that's similar to a lot of the cultures we come from, where family is everything. And Jesus says, no, you've got to love me above them. He can't just be one of the important things. He's got to be the most important thing. You cannot love God if you pick and choose which areas you will obey and honor him in, and then other areas you just kind of happily gloss over. So, yeah, I choose not to murder anyone. I know I'm not supposed to do that, so I'll try not to kill this week. But when it comes to theft or stealing or coveting, which, by the way, are both in the Ten Commandments, ah, you know, you know, well, stealing... Cheating on my taxes, is that really stealing? I'll just choose to ignore that. That's not loving God. And you can never say, I love God, if your expression of love 
And the way you love him is always comfortable and never costly. Now, not every decision to love God is always going to be costly. But if, as you take a look at your life and, and you think, yeah, I love God, but you know what? I'm pretty comfortable doing that. It, it's never really cost me anything, not necessarily finance, but time, but energy, but sacrificing my own. No, no, it's never costly. Then you're probably not loving God single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, and unreservedly. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what God is getting at? I know they're, they're hard words, aren't they? But he is telling you, this is my love language. This is how you love me. Okay, so that's the how in terms of all of us. But then also, it's all of life. So look at verse 6, the next verse. Verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Now, the commandments, these commandments, what he's talking about is in context, we've just had chapter 5, which remember about that 10 commandments. All right, these commandments... After he says, love me with all your heart, he says, love me with these commandments, which shows you, again, that loving God is not just about feelings. It's not even just abstract, you know, just get the vibe right and you're right. It's certainly not just love him how you feel like it, because the context is what? The commandments, the Ten Commandments. So God's love language, single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved. And we saw this last week, didn't we, in chapter 4. It's actually about obeying. It's obedience to his commands. And we don't have time to look at the Ten Commandments. I wish we did, but it covers key aspects of Israel's life as God's people. In fact, it's so important that it's shaped Judeo-Christian ethics for thousands of years. But if you like, uh, and we will look at it in a few weeks' time, and that's why we're not covering the Ten Commandments, because later on in chapters 12 to 26, you've got essentially 15 chapters of laws that really spell out in even more detail what the Ten Commandments look like for Israel. And we'll look at that in a few weeks' time. But cut a long story short, it is literally all of life. And in case we didn't get the point, look at the next few verses. He's going to drive it home very, uh, even more. Verse 7. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You get the picture, don't you? In the home, outside of the home with your closest relationship, outside of your closest relationship, in every part of your daily activity. And then verse 8, let's keep going. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. So you remind yourself and you remind others. It's visible to others. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Your house, your private life, your private sphere, your gates is usually the public sphere. All right, you get it, right? He's trying to make the point. It's got to be thorough everywhere, every part of life. Now, I want to show you a picture of um, Orthodox Jews actually will do this literally. So you see that thing on his forehead? That's right, and take this verse literally. He, writes, he puts it on his forehead. The thing around his arms? Yeah, it's to bind them on his arms. All right, that's quite literal. I don't think that's what God's literally telling us to do. But we also know, don't, I mean, this seems really strange to us. I'd like to see any of you try and dress up like that or kids like that on book week. Um, <laughs> what book? The book. Um, now, at different times in our culture, though, we do see people or subcultural groups who believe something, live, uh, believe something, love something, you know, are fans of something so much that they will live it, breathe it, listen to it, and wear it and embody it. So, I mean, for example, a certain extent, um, hipster culture on the left 
Yeah, you've seen them around the inner west. Yep, that's what they are. Um, or on the right, otaku culture. Who's heard of otaku? Yeah, it's kind of anime culture, yeah. They'll actually, you know. Um, but I think most evidence, those of us who are a little bit older, and that's only a few of us here, will remember in the 70s and 80s, punk culture. Yeah? No, okay. Um, punk culture was actually thorough. Like it wasn't, because you would only join the punk culture, wear that kind of stuff if you were serious about it. But it was everything, right? They, it, it represented an anti-authoritarian, rebellious kind of thing. Um, they lived it, they breathed it. It became a style of music, punk music. Um, they would wear it, literally wear it everywhere. They embodied it. They believed in it so much, it was visible to everyone. And it was inside, outside, it was private, it was public. Yeah? Right? That's the kind of thing it's talking about. All of life. That's what obeying God, single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved love is to look like. Well, not like that, but you get the picture, don't you? Now, I want to especially um, come back to the point of verse 7 as we apply this point. Yes, it's all of life, but you notice how much Deuteronomy here gives attention to the next generation. And one of the ways that you know that you're passing on this all, um, that you are living the all-of-life love is what you do with your children. So remember verse 7, impress them on your children. Now, we didn't read this earlier, so come with me to verse 20, because this is how the chapter ends. Again, it's about children. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell them, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and gave us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Again, do you see? When your son asks you, when your children ask you, it's about impressing them on your children. And this is so important, not just because, remember, this is the next generation, but God had to make sure that beyond this generation, for generations as they enter the land, that they were still going to love God with all of their heart, soul, and strength. But it's also because there's something about children, and those of you who are parents know, children do not miss a thing, do they? Like, they're really good at picking out hypocrisy. If you as parents want to say one thing and do another, your, your kids will be on it, right? In other words, if your kids never ask you, mom and dad, why do we do these things? Why do we go to church on a Sunday? Why is the Bible opened in the morning and you're there on your own waking up early to read it? Why do you read Bible stories to us in bed? Why do we have family devotion? If they're never asking those questions, or why do you live differently? Why don't we swear at home? If they're never asking you those questions, the good chance is you're not living it in all of your life, are you? Because kids miss nothing. Parents. This is our responsibility. Moms and dads, you are pastors. Did you know that? Your kids are your flock. 
And God may be saying to you today, above everything else, impress them on our children. In the morning congregation, uh, I already mentioned him, and I didn't ask his permission, and he was happy for that to happen. So I'm going to say it again. Um, so uh, those of you who know Kirby, he's preached here before. He's one of our elders. Um, we are in an elders meeting last, uh, last Tuesday night, and one of our elder, elders mentioned, oh, you know, Kirby, I always hear your son, Declan, and he's only, what, six, seven years old? Um, he's always singing so loudly in church and just love hearing Declan's voice. And Kirby was really honest. And Elder Kirby said, you know what? That was actually a real struggle for us. For a long time, um, the boys just didn't sing in church. They didn't want to sing it. They didn't really feel like they could take part. But he said, but you know what? Um, what's really improved, he said, was um, that when we started singing songs, these same songs we sing at church, and we sing a few of them in our family devotions, um, Declan started to learn them, and also he began to be able to read, so that helped him, and, and so now he's trying to take part in singing in church. And I was, I mean, he didn't say that to boast or anything, he just really honestly said, you know, this is why things have changed for Declan. And I was just really impressed that he was a man who took seriously, right, the kind of worship they did at home. It's the first time I've heard him talk about what they do in family worship. I knew they did it. But to, to, to see a dad say, you know, we've, we've really tried hard, to read the Bible with our boys, and to even sing at home. I'm sure it's not, you know, guitars and drums and everything, all right? But they really have tried to apply this principle, that we are responsible to raise our children, right, so that they would know what loving God looks like. Now, if you're single, or if you don't yet have kids, or maybe your kids have all grown up, then it's our responsibility collectively in church, isn't it? Because our children, and there's a lot of little ones here at this service particularly, right? We together as a family can help pass on the love of God to them and model that. So the most valuable ministries at church are children's ministries and youth ministries. Because it's that next generation, isn't it? That's so important. All right, so that's the how. How can we love the Lord? Single-mindedly wholeheartedly, unreservedly. Well, why? Why love the Lord? Well, that's my next point. So back to verse 5. Um, we're actually going backwards. We started verse 6. But verse 5 is actually the reason why we love the Lord. And it's probably, arguably, for Jews, both then and now, the most important verse of the whole Bible. In fact, it's even given its own name. It's called the Shema. Right? You've heard of the Shema? Jews would recite this verse. And the way it's, why it's called Shema is because in Hebrew, the word hear, which is the first word of verse 5, hear, O Israel, is Shema. All right, so this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the foundation, the reason for loving God. And we love God, why? Two reasons, because of who He is and what He's done. So let's look at them in turn, who He is. All right, remember, Israel are about to go into a land... And they're about to conquer peoples, not just one type of people, but many nations, all part of the Canaan, land of Canaan, what we call Canaanites, but there's actually many nations. And each nation had many gods, different gods. Okay, they were polytheists. Each tribe, each nation, perhaps even every town and every city had different gods. And so in that context, God wanted to make sure they knew, right, that there was God, the Lord, Yahweh, and only Him. Now, the, the, the next verse, well, verse 5, is literally, in the Hebrew, only four words. And there's no vowels. 
So literally, it's these four words. Yahweh, one word. Our God, that's one word in Hebrew. Yahweh, one. That's verse five. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. So you can actually try and figure out different ways in which that might mean. And there's at least six different possibilities. There you go, I've listed them all for you. Now, to save you stressing out about these six possibilities, and we're not going to go through all of them, really, they boil down to two, the top two, and really, the top two capture the meaning of all of the other ones. So we're going to really look at those ones, and I think they've both got truth to it. I don't want to choose A or B. I think it's A and B. So the first kind of meaning is that Yahweh is the only God, okay? That's what it's trying to say. Yahweh is the only God. It's the statement about God's uh, about monotheism, only one God, and God's supremacy. So um, if you like, you can see it as translated as something like Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. That's the idea there. You get that in chapter 4, verse 35. Don't look it up, but last week there was a passage that said this, that you were shown these things so that you might know, know what? That Yahweh is God, beside him there is no other. I think that's making that statement. Yahweh is the only God there are no other gods in existence except Yahweh, monotheism. But it's also a statement about God's supremacy or Yahweh's supremacy, that there's nothing like him, whether gods or anything else. God is incomparable. He is unique. He is supreme. Okay, that's the first idea. Yahweh is the one and the only. The second idea behind it is the second uh, translation in bold. Yahweh, our God, is one Yahweh. Now, that's saying there is only one Yahweh, but that kind of seems strange to us. What, there are many Yahwehs? Or they were in danger of thinking there were many Yahwehs? Well, actually, the answer is yes, because in a polytheistic society, and including um, some polytheism um, religions like Hinduism today, you can have a God who reveals himself in different ways, like wearing different masks. And so you could possibly believe that there's a Yahweh of Bankstown is different to a Yahweh of Kingsgrove. And different to a Yahweh. Do you see what I mean? It's like Yahweh, but he wears different masks. It's like Korean fried chicken. Bear with me here. This, this is going somewhere. I thought hard about this, and I was hungry when I thought about it. So um, Korean fried chicken, you can get Korean fried chicken at all these different Korean fried chicken shops. It's the same thing, same, same, but different, right? They all have their own recipe, right? It's sort of the same, but it's not standardized. Korean fried chicken, yeah, wears different masks, even though it's Korean fried chicken. That's the possible way in which some people would have believed in Yahweh. And, and, and for Israel, he's saying, no, 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 this is not many manifestations or versions of Yahweh. There's only one version of Yahweh, only one Yahweh. So it's not Korean fried chicken KFC. It's actually what? Kentucky fried chicken KFC. See where I'm going with this? Kentucky fried chicken all around the world, 11 herbs and spices. Secret recipe locked in a vault. You have to do it our way. There's only one KFC. Tien, this one's for you, brother. Thank you. There's only one Yahweh. Only one version, only one revelation. It's not relativism. Your Yahweh is good for you. My Yahweh is good for me. You hear people say that. Your God, good for you. This is my God. No, no, no. Yahweh is only one version, only one revelation. He's not wearing different masks, and he is consistent. You're not going to get Yahweh behaving differently here to there. Now, that's the second meaning. You put both of these together and you will see that who he is 
will flow directly into how we're to love him. Remember, the why answers the how. We're just going backwards. We looked at the how first, now we look at the why. But you see, the why answers the how. Because God is one and singular and there is no other God than God, and because he is unique and there's only one revelation, then it makes sense that you are to love him, what? Single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly. Do you see what I mean? Right? Who he is flows into how we're to love him. Also, of what he's done. What he's done is going to inform how we love him as well. Now, we already saw that Yahweh, or the Lord, is God's special covenant name. The name he gives his people as he reveals himself intimately to them. It's a little bit like, I don't know how many of you have gone back to high school after you finish your HSC, and then your teacher, which up to now you've called Sir or Ms. or some other name you can't remember, Mr. something or other, they actually come up to you and go, Oh, you don't have to call me that anymore. Just call me John or Clement or Jason. I don't know. Or Dan. Oh, would you actually do that to your former students? Introduce them by your first name? Yeah, all of a sudden, it's different, isn't it? Up to now, you were Ms. or Miss or, 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 or Sir. Now you're Dan. Yahweh is the intimate friend name that God gives to his people. So what he's done, his relationship with them already is in his name. But also, if you didn't get that point earlier, remember the first part? Yahweh, our God, our God, our God. He wasn't always their God. He became their God when he rescued them. And he did that before he gave them any commandments. Before he gave them any demands. Before he said, you must live this way, he said, I'm going to rescue you first. You see, that's called grace, yeah? In the Bible, and not just in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, grace always comes before expectations. God always loves us first and then says, out of that love that you've experienced now, this is the way you're to live for your good and my glory. Now you see that um, when it came to verses 20 to 25, remember your son asks you why all these things, and that long explanation between verses 21 to 25 is all about what the Lord had done for them. The reason we're to do all of these things is because God loved us first. He rescued us first. And if we had time to look at the Ten Commandments, you will see that before commandment number one, God already says first, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of slavery. Grace, rescue, salvation comes first. What he's done for them is the basis for why they're to love him and how they're to love him. Now, I also want to, before we move to, to the last point, to note that there is also a link. So who he is and what he's done. Those two things actually belong together as well. Who he is guarantees what he's done. All right? If you think about it, if God is not the only God and supreme and unique and incomparable, then you can't actually trust his salvation and his power to save you. Imagine a world where there's many gods, and Yahweh is but one of many gods. When he saves you, how will you know that some other god isn't going to come along and ruin that plan? Do you see what I mean? If God were not unique, supreme, and the only one, your salvation is in doubt. What he's done for you is in doubt. Also, if God isn't reliable, if he wears masks, and there's a different Yahweh for every different place in every different region, then how can you trust his promises? How can you be sure that he isn't deceiving you? 
You see? Who he is guarantees what he's done. All right. So let's, that's, that's Deuteronomy 6. Let's bring it home to us now. Remember, verses 5 and 6 are key verses, not just for Deuteronomy, but as Jesus said, these sum up what life living in love for God looks like for us today. And just to show you what it actually means for us, look at this amazing verse. You probably never even noticed it in 1 Corinthians 8 before, but you'll now notice it because you've read Deuteronomy 6. Look what Paul says. And this is, by the way, in the context of idols and offering eating foods offered to idols. He says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. He's quoting where? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Yep. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, you take that statement about, but there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, in the context of what he's just quoted in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, right? The Lord is one. And you, you see what astounding thing he's saying about Jesus. He's saying, as far as we're concerned, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, who revealed himself in fire to the Old Testament Israelites and say, there is no other God but me, is the same Lord who became a man in the person of Jesus, and that is the Lord. He is the Lord that we are to love with all of our heart, soul, and strength. We're to take everything he says to Israel about Yahweh, and we see it now applied to the Lord Jesus. But when it's about Jesus, it's intensified, isn't it? Because in Jesus, John chapter 1 says, um, grace and, that grace came through Moses, Right? But we see even more clearly through Jesus Christ. Right? Because through Jesus, the fuller revelation of who God is and what he's done is seen. And particularly when we see the cross. Particularly you will see who God is and what he's done when you see the cross of Christ. You see, friends, you're to love him with all your heart, your soul and your strength, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, unreservedly, because you know what? That is how the Lord Jesus loved you. You think about the cross and how he set his heart single-mindedly, even when Satan gave him other options to take a detour of comfort. No, Jesus, Luke tells us, set his mind on going to Jerusalem because he knew that would be the place he would die. He loved you single-mindedly with all of his heart. And he loved you with all of his soul. The night before he went to the cross, he's praying there in the garden of Gethsemane. He is sweating blood. He is on his knees. He's pleading with God to take the cup away from him. And remember his words. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He loved you with all of his soul. And he loved you with all of his strength until every last ounce of strength was exhausted when he hung on the cross and he bled out and he breathed out his last breath and he said, it is finished. Because he loved you with all of his strength. 
And so when he says to you today, do you love me with all of your heart and soul and strength? It's nothing that he hasn't already done for you. The only difference is we were undeserving. And he, our creator, was always deserving of that kind of love. I'm going to get the band to come up here and get get us ready to sing. I'll get Jace to just begin playing. Because as I said at the beginning, Jesus, through this passage of Scripture, and I really have prayed and we've prayed that through His Holy Spirit today, is asking each of us here today, right now, do you love me? And I wonder how you would answer that question. Jesus says, do you love me? Is your answer a single-minded, wholehearted, unreserved, yes? Or I suspect for some of us here, it's a yes, but... So what is the but? Because the but is what you're holding back, isn't it? The but is what's preventing you from being single-minded and instead maybe a bit double-minded. The but is preventing you from being wholehearted. Maybe you're a bit half-hearted. The but is preventing you from being unreserved and, and maybe you're a bit lukewarm in your love for Jesus. And so I want you to take a moment as the music is softly playing in the background to just do business with God. Father, I just pray right now that you would be giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know the area, that area or those areas in our lives you want us right now to be, to be bringing to mind, Father, where we are holding back. So I want you to, where you are now, be thinking, what am I holding back? What is, what is it that's stopping me from loving Jesus with all of my heart and soul and strength? Listen to God. Let Him speak to you in your heart. Let Him uncover that. That thing, that area, that that part. Maybe that loving Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and strength is for you about not being ashamed to, to just be known as a Christian. Maybe you've been holding back. It's, it's a hostile environment, we know, at your universities, at your workplaces. To say, I'm a Christian, I might stand for a certain sexual ethics or views about marriage. And maybe you've shied away from that. Maybe you're a bit ashamed. You're not willing to suffer for it. Maybe loving Jesus means to without being a Bible basher or difficult, just being counted. Maybe loving Jesus wholeheartedly for you is just not glossing over that inconvenient sin in your life or that convenient sin in your life that you'd rather just not think about. You know it's there. God's been softly or sometimes quite strongly prodding it. You've just been ignoring it for so long and maybe... Today is time to deal with that. 
Or maybe it's an area of surrender, sacrifice. Remember, you can't say you love God if it's never costly, if it's always comfortable. And some pleasure, some money, some ambition, I don't know what it is for you, you know. Ah, it's time to surrender that. Or maybe it's something quite mundane but really important. That God is saying to you today, it's supposed to be all of me in all of life. And I just don't prioritize spending time with him every day. And prayer and reading of the word and worship, it's just something I only do on Sundays. I know if I treated my spouse like that, we probably wouldn't be married anymore. Maybe God is just saying, prioritize me in your everyday. Or maybe the challenge was, as I said before, it's about your families and you are a parent and therefore a pastor and you've neglected the raising of your children to know and love the Lord. Or you've just lived a double life that at home there is nothing distinctive about you as a family, as a family that serves and fears God. And maybe that's what you need to be doing, spending time in your family with your spouse regularly in word and prayer and devotions. Or maybe for you it's... There's a big step of faith, radical obedience that will be really costly, a total life change, and you've been just wanting to hold back. And Jesus says, love me with all of your mostness. Step out in faith. Or maybe it's, you know, and this is something I've experienced, is actually you just can't forgive, let go of bitterness and anger. Someone's really hurt you, yes, but you are holding back to even want to reconcile. And that's like a wet blanket that just smothers everything you do. It's affecting your relationship with them, obviously, but also with God. And God says, let go of that. Forgive. Seek reconciliation. Even if it hurts, even if it's costly. Or maybe for you, it's... What I preached about a couple of weeks ago, not giving in to fear and worry and doubt and just being able to surrender what you cannot control, which is so much, isn't it? And to say, Jesus, I want to give it to you. And I'm willing to let go of my worries and fears and doubts. Or maybe for you, it's actually just as simple as today becoming a Christian. You've been considering it for ages and ages and not a matter of knowing more it really is just a matter of responding and giving your life over to Jesus and say yes I will follow you but hearing again how Jesus loved you with all of his heart soul and strength maybe today is just to say yes I will I, I, I don't know what it is for you but Jesus I believe is speaking to each one of us we're going to stand and sing and then in a moment, um, after the song, and before we all go our separate ways, I'm going to come back up again and ask us to, to actually uh, write what it is that we, God has been putting on our house. Write it down. Or put it on our phones or somewhere. Um, but let's stand and sing, and then I'll come back and, and talk us through the next bit of response. Let's